Zelensky makes morale building visit to war zone in East. By Njoli Liston Valerie Hopkins John Ismay Anushka Padel Victoria Kim Nick Cumming Bruce Carly Olson Ivan Nechipurenko Dmitry Kavin Victoria Kim Mark Santora Keith Bradshaw. President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Ukrainian troops in the Bakhmut area, his office said on Wednesday, as Ukraine continues to put up a fierce fight for the ravaged eastern city that has become a focal point of the war. Mr. Zelensky's morale-building trip came as President Xi Jinping of China left Moscow after days of high-profile, closely-watched talks with Russia's President, Vladimir V. Putin, that solidified their alliance as a bulwark against Western influence and are expected to help insulate Russia from Western sanctions over the war. The Ukrainian leader heard reports on the operational situation on the front line and distributed awards to service members, according to a statement from his office. It described the visit as a working trip to the Donetsk region, but did not specify the exact location. An image posted on Twitter by OKKO, a Ukrainian gas station chain, on Wednesday showed Mr. Zelensky posing with staff members at a branch in Kostiantinivka, about 15 miles from Bakhmut. Mr. Zelensky has said that he and his generals are determined to hold on to Bakhmut in Ukraine's Donbass region despite Russia's efforts to encircle the city, saying that the fight is wearing down Moscow's forces and resources. The city has also become a potent symbol of Ukrainian resistance. The battle for Bakhmut, which began in the summer, has become one of Russia's longest-running sustained assaults since it launched its full-scale invasion more than a year ago. The fighting has intensified in recent months, with Moscow throwing thousands of men from its armed forces and the Wagner private military company into a grinding and often block-by-block battle that has produced heavy casualties for both sides. The battle has also consumed a huge amount of Kiev's ammunition supplies, leading some Western and Ukrainian officials to warn that trying to hold Bakhmut, whose strategic significance is debated, could hurt Kiev as it plans for an anticipated counteroffensive in the spring. Mr. Zelensky, who last visited Bakhmut publicly in December, said during his latest visit that he was honored to meet with troops, shake their hands and confer honors. Thank you for protecting the state, sovereignty, the east of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky said, according to a statement from his office on Wednesday, which included images showing him posing for selfies with troops. Later in the day, Mr. Zelensky traveled northwest of Bakhmut to the Kharkiv region in Ukraine's northeast. He visited a hospital treating Ukrainian service members and presented awards to some of the wounded. He also presented the city's mayor, Ayr Tarakov, with the Hero City Award to symbolize the special bravery of the people of Kharkiv, Mr. Zelensky said in his nightly address on Wednesday. The visits came days after Mr. Putin visited the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol, now occupied by Russian forces after one of Moscow's most brutal campaigns of the war. The trip to Mariupol, about 50 miles southeast of the Ukrainian-controlled town of Volodar, where Russian forces sustained heavy losses just weeks ago and where fighting is continuing, is believed to be the closest Mr. Putin has come to the front lines since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Moscow, Russia's deputy foreign minister said this week that the risk of nuclear war between his country and the United States was at its highest in decades. American support for Ukraine has put Russia in a de facto state of open conflict with the United States, the Russian deputy foreign minister, Sergei Aryabkov, said during a conference in Moscow about Russia's decision to suspend its participation in the New START arms reduction treaty. 
Currently, there is an absolutely unprecedented level of hostility toward the U.S. In Russia, he said. I wouldn't want to dive into a discussion about whether the likelihood of a nuclear conflict is high today, but it is higher than anything we have had for the past few decades, let's put it that way, Mr. Ryabkov said. Mr. Ryabkov said that the recent summit between President Vladimir V. Putin and China's leader, Xi Jinping, underscored the existence of a new world order in which the United States was not the leading power. Some analysts have said the display of brotherly relations between Xi Jinping and Vladimir V. Putin during a three-day state visit that concluded Wednesday belies the real nature of the relationship. China is a more powerful partner in the alliance with an increasingly isolated and reliant Russia. Mr. Ryabkov did not see it like that. In the interview, he said that the summit was clear proof that Russia was rejecting the global dominance of the United States in favor of a world led by China, in the hope of building the multipolar global order the Kremlin seeks. The message of the summit between the leaders was that there is an alternative to American dictates, Mr. Ryabkov said. We would be happy to be in a family of civilized nations, he said. But we are now in a situation where, in fact, the old world order is being broken. And what we used to know, what was familiar, is being replaced by another world that is more unstable, probably more conflict-prone, but I hope a fairer one, where Big Brother will not dominate. Mr. Xi was more concise when he bade farewell to Mr. Putin on Tuesday night, after a carefully choreographed set of meetings and a state banquet. Right now there are changes, the likes of which we haven't seen for 100 years, Mr. Xi told Mr. Putin through an interpreter, according to a video taken by a journalist from the Kremlin media pool. And we are the ones driving these changes together, Mr. Xi said, before the two men shook hands. The State of the War Xi's visit to Russia President Vladimir Putin of Russia welcomed Xi Jinping, China's top leader, in Moscow during a state visit carefully choreographed to project unity. The two leaders declared an enduring economic partnership, reinforcing their shared opposition to American dominance. Crimea The Crimean Peninsula, which Russia seized from Ukraine in 2014, has become an increasingly attractive target for Kyiv. Japan's Prime Minister in Ukraine Fumio Kishida, who has been seeking a more active role for his country in international affairs, made an unannounced trip to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. A crime in progress The International Criminal Court's arrest warrant for Putin over the forcible deportation of Ukrainian children highlights a practice that the Kremlin has not concealed and says will continue. Britain on Wednesday defended its decision to supply Ukraine with weapons made with depleted uranium, a day after President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia falsely claimed the material had a nuclear component. Britain's government has confirmed that it would provide Ukraine with armor-piercing shells that contain depleted uranium, alongside its Challenger 2 tanks, which use them. Depleted uranium is a standard component in conventional anti-armor weapons that NATO countries have used for decades, and Britain said in a statement that the ammunition it was providing had nothing to do with nuclear weapons. The density of depleted uranium makes it an effective material for piercing heavy armor on the battlefield and is used by many militaries. 
Among them are Russia's, which upgraded its main battle tank to add the ability to fire depleted uranium shells, the TASS state news agency reported in 2018. James Cleverly, Britain's foreign secretary, told reporters on Wednesday that there was no nuclear escalation, adding, the only country in the world that is talking about nuclear issues is Russia. Uranium, a heavy metal, must be enriched to be used for nuclear purposes. Depleted uranium, which is about two and a half times denser than steel, is a byproduct of that enrichment, still radioactive but at a much lower level. Mr. Putin's false assertion came in a statement on Tuesday during his summit with China's leader, Xi Jinping, who U.S. officials believe has been urging Russia not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Depleted uranium has been used by militaries as far back as the 1990 Gulf War, so this is nothing new and nothing unusual, said Stuart Crawford, a defense analyst and former army officer in Britain. Mr. Crawford said that Russia uses depleted uranium in some of its ammunition, including 125mm tank rounds. It is certainly not a nuclear component as Mr. Putin described it, he said. Saying this ups the ante or escalates the conflict because of the nuclear aspect is just nonsense, Mr. Crawford said. Questions have long followed the use of depleted uranium in some munitions and armor, as outside groups have raised environmental and safety concerns. A 2022 report from the United Nations Environment Program identified depleted uranium as a risk in the war in Ukraine, saying that while it does not release radiation that can penetrate healthy skin, it does have the potential to cause radiation damage if inhaled or ingested, which can happen when the material is pulverized on impact. The Pentagon has also deemed depleted uranium safe, though after the U.S. military used it in Iraq, some activists and others connected it to birth defects and cancers. Numerous studies have been conducted on a possible link, without firm conclusions. In 2013, Britain's Ministry of Defence downplayed any health or environmental risks related to the use of depleted uranium. In a paper, it said that while the dust released on impact can sometimes be a health hazard, all the research to date indicates that these circumstances are extremely unlikely to occur and, if they do, will only affect very small groups who will be at much greater risk from the other hazards associated with armed conflict. The Pentagon spokesman, Brig General Patrick S. Ryder, said in a briefing on Tuesday that, to his knowledge, the United States has not provided Ukraine with any ammunition that includes depleted uranium. Mr. Putin's comments did not appear to be related to environmental or heath risks, but instead accused the West of escalating the war by sending weapons with depleted uranium and said Russia will have to respond accordingly. That appeared to be a veiled threat to wield Moscow's nuclear arsenal in Ukraine, as Mr. Putin has warned of at times during the war. U.S. officials have said they have seen no effort by Russia to move or employ its nuclear weapons and believe the risk of their use is low, though worries linger. Prince William of Britain made an unannounced trip to Poland on Wednesday to personally thank British and Polish troops supporting Ukraine's armed forces as part of a two-day visit intended to highlight Britain's support for Ukraine. William arrived in Warsaw and then traveled to the southeastern city of Rzeszow, roughly 50 miles from Poland's border, where he told troops that everyone back home thoroughly supports you. He also met with the Polish defense minister, Mariusz Blazak, who called the visit a great honor and emphasized that British and Polish troops were working side by side to strengthen not just Poland's security, but also the security of NATO's entire eastern flank.
Poland and Britain have been on the forefront of countries providing aid to Ukraine. Each pledged this year to send Western battle tanks in an effort to coax other allies into doing the same, a move that proved successful. Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, also said last week that his country would be the first NATO nation to give Ukraine fighter jets. William was the latest high-profile figure to visit Rzeszow during the war. The city serves as a vital hub of Western military and humanitarian aid. President Biden visited American troops stationed there last year and traveled through the city's airport on his way to Kiev in February. And President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine has also visited, bestowing the honorary title of Rescuer City on Rzeszow for its role in supporting Ukraine. William was to meet Ukrainian refugees in Warsaw later Wednesday evening, according to a statement shared with the Polish and British news media by Kensington Palace. On Thursday, he is expected to meet with Mr. Duda, but first he is scheduled to lay a wreath at Warsaw's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, just as Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip did in 1996. Russian missile and drone strikes killed at least eight people in Ukraine on Wednesday, and President Volodymyr Zelensky later vowed his country would respond to every attack. A series of pre-dawn strikes set off air raid sirens in region around the capital of Kiev. At least seven people were killed and nine others were wounded, including a child, when a drone strike hit a college in Rzyszczyv, about 50 miles southeast of the capital, local military officials said on Wednesday. The top floors of two dormitory buildings and another building were destroyed, according to Ukraine's state emergency service. More than 200 people were evacuated from the dormitories after blasts started to shake the town at about 3 a.m., the police said. An ambulance driver responding to the scene was among those killed. Later in the morning, a Russian missile slammed into an apartment complex in the southern city of Zaporizhia, Ukrainian officials said, collapsing part of the structures and setting off a raging blaze that was captured on video. Rescue workers rushed to the scene, where two nine-story buildings had been hit, Ukrainian officials said. Ukraine's interior ministry said one person died and at least 34 people were injured, including three children. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine shared video on Twitter that he said showed the attack. The footage, which appeared to be taken from a nearby closed-circuit television camera, has been corroborated by Storyful, a company that monitors social video. Right now, residential areas where ordinary people and children live are being fired at, he wrote. This must not become just another day in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world. Later, in his nightly address to the nation, Mr. Zelensky vowed to punish Russia for the attacks on civilians. We will certainly respond to the occupier for every attack on our cities, he said. Yuri Anat, a spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force, said on Ukrainian television on Wednesday that investigators were still trying to determine what type of missile had hit the complex, but that it appeared to have been fired from a long-range multiple-launch rocket system. Air raid alerts began blaring in the capital, Kiev, shortly after midnight and sounded until around 4.30 a.m. The distant thunder of what sounded like interceptions by air defense systems could be heard in the center of the city. The Ukrainian military said it had shot down 16 of 21 Russian drones overnight. The southern port city of Odessa also came under Russian missile attack late Tuesday, Ukrainian officials said. 
One missile struck a three-story building on the grounds of a monastery, injuring three people, Andriy Yermak, the head of Ukraine's presidential office, said in a statement. Two other missiles were shot down, he said. Geneva, United Nations investigators said on Wednesday that Belarus is systematically resorting to torture and other abuses of detainees on a scale that may amount to crimes against humanity as President Alexander G. Lukashenko escalates his campaign of repression against political opponents, independent journalists and human rights activists. In a statement, the Office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights cited systematic, widespread and gross human rights violations, including at least five deaths of people who were shot, beaten or mistreated for activities linked to anti-government protests in 2020. The statement noted that the police had detained tens of thousands of people in those demonstrations or the anti-war protests that followed Russia's February 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Lukashenko is a close ally of President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia, and Belarus served as a staging ground for Russia's invasion. But both leaders are now under scrutiny for human rights violations on a major scale. Last week, the International Criminal Court in The Hague issued an arrest warrant for Mr. Putin, accusing him of war crimes related to the conflict in Ukraine. In Belarus, detainees of all ages had experienced severe and prolonged beatings and ill-treatment that left some unable to walk, the UN statement said. Former prisoners reported conditions that amounted to inhuman treatment, it said, describing extremely overcrowded cells where prisoners were allowed to sit or lie down only at night. The abuses may amount to crimes against humanity, taking into account their intentionally directed, widespread and systematic nature against the civilian population, Nada al-Nashif, the UN Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights, told the Human Rights Council on Wednesday. The UN investigators also documented more than 100 cases of sexual or gender-based violence, including rape or threats of rape, often directed by men towards men, according to the statement released Wednesday, and most often committed by higher-ranking officers. Larissa Belskaya, the Belarusian ambassador to the United Nations in Geneva, rejected the report as biased. We don't have political prisoners, we have people who broke the law, she told the council. Visitors to Belarus would see that we have calm, clean cities and it is possible to speak in the streets with doctors, with teachers, with students and artists. But as of March, Belarus held at least 1,459 political detainees and had convicted 2,416 people on charges of extremism, the UN statement said, and the crackdown is intensifying. The government has listed most independent journalists, including the Belarusian Association of Journalists, as extremist, Ms. Al-Nashif said. Nearly 800 non-governmental organizations have been liquidated, another 432 organizations have closed to avoid criminal prosecution and at least 100,000 people have fled abroad, according to the UN statement. This month, courts sentenced a Nobel Peace Laureate and pro-democracy activist, Alesh Bialyatsky, to 10 years in jail and Svetlana Sikhanovskaya, an opposition leader who fled abroad, to 15 years. Ms. Al-Nashif expressed the United Nations' concern over recent amendments to Belarusian laws. These enable the government to terminate the citizenship of Belarusians abroad convicted within Belarus of extremism, which includes insulting the president or calling for sanctions, and widening the application of the death penalty for actions that by international standards do not count as serious crimes or for treason. The amendments, she said, provide broad license for abuse of repression.
The Canadian Immigration Ministry is extending the deadline on a visa program that allows Ukrainians to become temporary residents of Canada. The deadline had been set for this month, but now Ukrainians and their families have until July 15 to apply for a visa in the program. Those with visas will be allowed to travel to Canada until March 31, 2024, and be able to extend or adjust their temporary status until then, according to a statement from the ministry issued on Wednesday. We continue working to provide Ukrainians with a temporary safe haven and the vital settlement services and supports they need to thrive in communities across Canada, Sean Fraser, Canada's immigration minister, said in the statement. The visa program, which began last year shortly after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, eliminates many requirements and lifts limits on how many Ukrainians can apply for visas. This month, the Biden administration extended the amount of time that Ukrainians who fled the war can stay in the United States. At least 8 million people have left Ukraine as refugees since Russia invaded in February 2022, according to the United Nations, and 5 million more have been displaced inside Ukraine. That has fueled one of the biggest refugee crises since World War II in Europe. Canada has long pursued a strategy of recruiting immigrants to make up for its aging native-born population and low birth rate, and the strategy has broad public support. The country has set record targets, aiming to attract 1.45 million immigrants from 2023 to 2025. In October, the census agency said that more than one in five Canadians was an immigrant. The program for Ukrainians allows visa holders to stay in Canada as temporary residents for three years, according to the ministry. The Ukrainians are eligible to apply to work and study permits, financial support and emergency accommodations for two weeks after they arrive in the country. The humanitarian program may also help address Canada's labour shortage, which has spawned efforts to increase the country's population, including incentivizing immigration. Look, folks, it's simple to me, Canada needs more people, Mr. Fraser said during a news conference about efforts to increase immigration in November. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labour force, if we're going to rebalance a worrying demographic trend and if we're going to continue to reunite families. The Russian defense minister on Wednesday gave medals to the pilots of two Su-27 fighter jets that harassed a U.S. reconnaissance drone before it went down in the Black Sea last week, in the first direct confrontation between American and Russian militaries since the start of the war in Ukraine. The defense minister, Sergei K. Shoigu, decorated the two pilots with the Order of Courage, saying they had prevented the MQ-9 Reaper drone from entering airspace that Russia restricted for the purposes of conducting the war in Ukraine, the ministry said in a statement. The United States maintains that the drone was over international waters and has called its interception reckless, unsafe and unprofessional. The Russian warplanes made high-speed passes dangerously close to the drone, dumping what appeared to be fuel on it, American officials have said. One of the fighters clipped the drone's propeller as it passed, crippling the unmanned aircraft and forcing its operators to crash it into the sea, the United States has said, releasing video from the drone that showed damage to its propeller. One of the two Russian pilots, Major Vasily Vavilov, described in an interview released by the Russian Defense Ministry how the fighters approached the unmanned aerial vehicle, identified it, and took maneuvers to stop it from fulfilling its task. He added, I am very proud to receive such a high award.
The other pilot, Major Sergei Popov, noted that the Russian warplanes had not used weapons. He also claimed the fighter planes did not make direct contact with the drone. The award ceremony was the top news on one of the two Russian national news networks. It appeared to underscore the Kremlin's attempt to portray the incident as proof that Russia can stand to the American military. The downing of the drone was applauded by many pro-invasion conservatives in Russia. Speaking about the episode on Wednesday, Russia's deputy foreign minister, Sergei Ryabkov, said that the Americans would run into our countermeasures. If the United States continued its reconnaissance flights over the Black Sea, no American drones, reconnaissance, strike, strategic, whatever, can shake our determination, said Mr. Ryabkov, according to Interfax, a Russian news agency. Audio recordings obtained by the New York Times appear to capture Russian military efforts to retrieve debris of the U.S. surveillance drone down in the Black Sea last week. The intercepts, recorded by radio hobbyists who were monitoring publicly accessible airwaves last Tuesday, begin about eight hours after the MQ-9 Reaper drone encountered two Russian warplanes in the first recorded physical clash between Russia and the U.S. since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. The exchanges provide an unusual, unfiltered window into wartime communications among Russian military personnel. The audio recordings, which are fragments of chatter that took place over a span of nearly four hours, captured conversations between crew members of multiple ships and aircraft at the crash site. Using call signs, the voices coordinate efforts to retrieve objects from the water, including parts of an engine's casing, nose, wing and gas tank. There's also a recurring series of transmissions about the vessel's declining fuel reserves and concerns about whether they will have enough to make it back to shore. Several vessels eventually return to piers in Sevastopol, with one crew member indicating that he is passing by an area called Stryletska Bay. These details help verify that these units are operating near the crash site. There is no indication that particularly sensitive U.S. technology is recovered, but the intercepts are rife with audio interference and military code words that make them sometimes difficult to understand. The Pentagon said that, after the drone was damaged, it took steps to prevent foreign forces from obtaining useful intelligence should it be found or recovered. Whatever is left of that that's floating will probably be flight control surfaces, that kind of thing, probably nothing of real intrinsic value to them in terms of re-engineering or anything like that, John F. Kirby, a National Security Council spokesman, said during an interview with CNN last Thursday. We're not overly concerned about whatever they might get their hands on. A statement from Russia's Ministry of Defense on Friday said two fighter pilots had been honored with state awards for preventing the U.S. drone from entering Russian airspace. It claimed that there was no physical contact between the aircrafts and that quick maneuvering caused the drone to fall into unguided flight with a loss of altitude and eventually crash into the sea. That contradicted the U.S. government's version of events, which claimed that a Russian jet rammed the drone and damaged its propeller. The audio recordings indicate that some in the Russian military continue to use open, unencrypted radio channels for operational communications in Ukraine, as The Times previously has reported. The International Monetary Fund and Ukraine have reached a preliminary agreement on a $15.6 billion loan to help the country close staggering budget deficits and recover from widespread damage to its infrastructure from Russian attacks, the lender said Tuesday. 
Announced hours after the leaders of Russia and China declared an enduring economic partnership aimed at weathering Western sanctions and other consequences of Moscow's invasion, the loan by the Washington-based IMF highlighted Western allies' determination to continue supporting Ukraine to keep its government running as its military tries to fight back. The Funds Board is expected to review the four-year program in the coming weeks, according to a statement. The United States and European nations push for the package, which is intended to help Ukraine shore up its finances and stabilize an economy that has been battered by the war with Russia. Ukraine has pledged to institute changes to its economy, markets and budget as part of its application to become a member of the European Union. The fund, whose biggest contributor is the United States, has previously estimated that Ukraine is facing a budget shortfall of about $5 billion a month. The government has said that it plans to close the rest of the fiscal gap through financing from the United States and European Union. Russia's invasion has gutted Ukraine's industry, hampered exports and dampened consumer spending. The economy shrank 30% last year, the biggest decline since Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union in 1991 and could contract again this year. Attacks on the country's energy grid in recent months have further damaged food production and distribution and other industries, worsening economic uncertainty. The IMF forecasts that economic activity could contract as much as 3% or expand as much 1% in 2023. In addition to the horrific humanitarian toll, Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to have a devastating impact on the economy, Gavin Gray, an official with the IMF who led the agency's mission to Ukraine, said in a statement Tuesday. Ukrainian officials welcomed the deal, saying the support would help the country endure and rebuild in the thick of war. Still, Ukraine's financial needs are believed to colossal, the Kyiv School of Economics estimated that war-related damage to the country's infrastructure amounted to $127 billion as of September. This program will help us finance all critical expenditures, maintain macrofinancial stability and strengthen our interaction with other international partners, Denis Shmihal, Ukraine's Prime Minister, wrote on Telegram. The United States had urged the agency to approve a full loan package. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen, who on her visit to Kyiv last month made the case that supporting Ukraine's economy was as important as supplying the country militarily, said on Tuesday that the plan was an important step. An ambitious and appropriately conditioned IMF program is critical to underpin Ukraine's reform efforts, including to strengthen good governance and address risks of corruption and provide much-needed financial support, she said in a statement. To demonstrate accountability, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, recently fired or reassigned a series of officials, some of whom had been the subject of fraud or embezzlement accusations. Analysts said the moves were intended to reassure Western donors that even amid the war, Mr. Zelensky's government was determined to root out corruption, which has long bedeviled Ukraine. A correction was made on March 22, 2023 Because of an editing error, an earlier version of a picture caption with this article misstated the timing of a meeting between Ukraine's president and the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. It was in February, not on Monday.
KYIV, Ukraine, the Russian-installed authorities in occupied Crimea said on Wednesday that they had repelled an attempted attack by air and seaborne drones against the port of Sevastopol, home to the Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet, the second straight day that they said drones had targeted the peninsula. The Russian account of Wednesday's episode could not be independently verified, and Ukrainian officials did not immediately comment. Russia's governor in Crimea, Mikhail Razvoziv, said that three drones had been destroyed and that Russian ships were undamaged. After explosions were heard before dawn in Sevastopol, Mr. Razvoziv wrote on the Telegram messaging app that Russian ships had fought off an attack by maritime and airborne drones. They tried to penetrate the bay, he said, our sailors fired at them from small arms. Russia used military facilities in Crimea, which it illegally annexed in 2014 when it staged its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, and the peninsula serves as a critical supply hub for its forces. The facilities have been the targets of periodic attacks during the war, Ukrainian officials have maintained ambiguity about those strikes and do not directly take responsibility for them, although they often hint at their involvement. Kiev has made it clear that it wants to hit critical military targets in Crimea and also wants to make Russian forces there feel vulnerable, keeping them unsure what capabilities Ukrainian forces have at their disposal. Those efforts have taken on added urgency as Ukraine prepares for an anticipated offensive aimed at driving Russian forces out of the south. On Tuesday, Ukrainian officials said an explosion in the Crimean city of Dzankoy had taken out a train shipment of Russian-caliber cruise missiles and damaged a critical rail juncture. They all but confirmed that their forces were behind the attack. Russian officials disputed the Ukrainian account of the damage, saying that their air defenses had shot down a drone and that fragments had landed in civilian areas. Tsenkoy, about 50 miles south of the Ukrainian mainland, is a hub of Russian roads and railways that help supply occupation forces in southern Ukraine. For months, Ukraine and independent analysts had said that the city could be a target for Kiev, and in the aftermath of the blast on Tuesday, Ukrainian military officials spoke openly about the importance of such attacks. One of the reasons for inflicting such damage was precisely either a complete termination or an obstacle to the logistics of the enemy groups stationed in our territory, Colonel Serhii Baranov, a member of the Ukrainian military's general staff, told reporters. The attack Russia reported in Sevastopol on Wednesday was not the first to target the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. In late October, several maritime drones, apparently operated by remote control, were piloted into the bay past Russian defenses to attack ships in the Black Sea Fleet while they were at anchor. The Russian Defense Ministry said at the time that seven maritime and eight aerial drones were used, but downplayed damage to its fleet. Ukraine did not officially claim responsibility for the episode, though it came months after the United States, among other NATO allies, said it was supplying Ukraine with remote-controlled boats, even while, unusually, refusing to give details about that military aid. After that incident, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine announced the start of a fundraising campaign to secure a fleet of marine drones, as Kyiv tries to develop its ability to strike at longer range by air and sea. Ukroboronprom, Ukraine's main defense company, said in January that it had completed several stages of testing a long-range aerial drone. Ukraine is not known to possess any missiles that can reach targets in Crimea. Beijing, the leaders of China and Russia endorsed an expanded role for China's currency, the renminbi, during a summit in Moscow this week, a step that would tie Russia's economy closer to China's.
Buried in the two men's joint statement on Tuesday was a call for supporting the expansion of the use of local currency in bilateral trade, investment, credit and other economic and trade activities. China's top leader, Xi Jinping, left Moscow on Wednesday after days of meetings with President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia. Because Russia's ruble has given way to the renminbi even for some transactions inside Russia, the statement amounted to support for growth in use of the renminbi instead of the dollar. China has sought to expand international usage of its currency for more than a decade, but it remains limited. The renminbi is difficult to use except for buying goods from China, so selecting the Chinese currency will bind Russia even more tightly to trading with the country. With most American and European companies exiting Russia after Mr. Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Chinese companies have been rapidly expanding their role there in industries like the automotive sector. And broader use of the renminbi would make it easier for companies in China and its allies, like Russia, Iran and North Korea, to conduct international transactions without worrying about financial sanctions linked to using the dollar. It would also help insulate the Chinese economy from interest rate changes and other policy shifts in the United States. The renminbi might play a gradually increasing role in trade transactions involving China, said Mark Sobel, the U.S. chairman of the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, a research group that specializes in central banking and economic policy. But globally its role is still small, Mr. Sobel said, and even if it creeps up, that role should remain highly limited. Several issues, including China's own policies, stand in the currency's way. Finding renminbi to use outside China is difficult. Beijing has stringent limits on moving money into and out of the country, mainly to prevent wealthy people from moving their savings elsewhere. China also has tough restrictions on converting renminbi into other currencies and has recently imposed tight controls on its private sector, scaring off many foreign investors. Unlike the United States, China runs large trade surpluses. While dollars pile up outside the United States as American companies use them to pay for many imports, few renminbi are accumulating outside China. For fear of incurring sanctions, China's energy companies have steered clear of increasing their purchases of Russian oil and gas. Small Chinese energy companies have ramped up purchases instead. The statement on Tuesday by Mr. Xi and Mr. Putin increases the pressure on Chinese oil and gas giants, like PetroChina and Sinopec, to do more of their international transactions in renminbi. These companies have preferred to use dollars because oil and gas are mainly traded in dollars on world markets. Chinese energy companies place big bets on world energy markets to offset possible financial losses on their own oil and gas production if global prices move in unexpected directions.